In the name of the one true and living God, who was and is and is to come, the everlasting. Amen. I want to begin my sermon by thanking you for your many kindnesses to me during my time as your priest in charge. Your support of me when Bishop Jose asked me to assume this responsibility until you should find a new dean. Your support of programs and initiatives I offer to you. The way you have led me into your lives and shared with me your heart and soul. And what gives me especial joy, the ways in which, as time went on, your spirit seemed to rise, your enthusiasm blossomed, and your sense of hope glowed more and more. And now, being as you are on the tiptoe of expectation, you are ready to welcome Sarah Hurlbert as your dean when she comes this week. I know you will embrace her just as you embraced me. You will welcome her into your lives. You will eagerly await the revelation of the gifts God has given her to offer to you. A fruitful and spirit-filled collaboration will begin, and with God's grace will continue for as long as God desires it to. If I'm the tugboat guiding the ocean liner safely to her berth, I've happily done my work and must now set off for other tasks and in new directions, for your ship is safely in the harbor. Now there's one thing I'd like to explain one more time, because it's so important and a number of you have asked me about it. I've told you that I'll be absenting myself from the cathedral and its activities once Sarah has come. For a very simple reason. It's important for Sarah to become known to you on her own to form her friendships with you all. To take her time getting to know the traditions and customs of the cathedral. To be with you in times of joy and of difficulty and sorrow. To initiate her own programs and to offer to you her gifts and her vision for this place. All this takes time and Sarah needs the time and the emotional space to do it in. You need to bond with her too, to understand her and to embrace all she has to offer you. Now, when these things have been firmly set in place and Sarah's made her mark on the life of the cathedral, Laurel and I will be glad to take our place, this time, in the pew alongside of you. And, if asked, to assume any tasks Sarah may think we'd be helpful doing. In the meantime, we'll catch up on sleep. I'll have time to learn a new Beethoven sonata. 
Laurel can count on me to help doing the wash and cooking dinner. And we'll be attending the little church out where we have an old family log cabin, St. John's Kartuki J, west of Franklin. The church Laurel's been attending since she was a young girl, and we've been going to off and on since before we were married. Of course, we will miss you, but we will turn our sense of loss into continuing prayer for you and for your new life with Sarah. And our absence from the cathedral and all of you will give me the chance, finally, to look back on the arc of my ministry, to see if I can grasp its shape and sense its rhythms. It's time to do this, for I've been a priest much longer then I'll continue to be one. But in one sense, I believe I've always been directed by God in the way of the priesthood, even if I tried for quite a while to buck it. Even when I was quite young, divine things held a fascination for me. I loved the old Bible we had at home with its quaint woodcuts. I read the stories of the saints, especially if they came to a gruesome end. <laughs> I found the music of the church mysteriously compelling. I think I understand what the psalmist is saying in today's psalm when he sings, O God, you press your hand upon me behind and before. You have laid your hand on me. And then came the years of my intentional ministry, which began in college when I was given charge of the chapel and helped to oversee and plan the worship. After I became a priest, as the words of the hymn put it, I saw rare beasts and had unique adventures. I was a curate first, like Will, and like Will I learned much, although in my case, mostly things I'd never do. My first parish was in New Hampshire, where many of the parishioners were as flinty and hard-chiseled as the old man of the mountain, and where I had to win them over to the then New Book of Common Prayer. After eight or nine years, the Bishop of New Hampshire, with whom I'd worked happily on a number of projects, happened to let fall the remark that he hoped I wouldn't get old and fat where I was. <laughs> so I put my name in for a non-denominational, very international congregation in Vienna, Austria, where, because I was an Episcopal priest, I was equally welcome among the Lutheran and Reformed clergy and the Roman Catholic priests at St. Stephen's Cathedral. After five years, I returned to the States and to the Episcopal Church, and weary of being served, served the same hors d'oeuvres and Beaujolais when I'd interview for positions, became charmed by a working-class parish in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, where they proudly served me cranberry juice to break the ice. 
Pawtucket was a mill town, or had been one, and because I knew nothing of the world of mills, had to read some sociology in order to discover what I'd gotten myself into. And through these books, I learned, to my horror, that I was being treated in my parish as the mill owners treat the mill workers treated the mill owner, with a sense of feigned obsequiousness and the certainty that what the mill owner wanted, they didn't. If, by the time I left, I'd changed all that, I would have considered myself successful. It was there that I met and married Law. My last parish was in Maine, and if you think you've waited a long time for Sarah to come, I had to tell St. Mark's in Waterville, Maine, that although they'd called me in April, I couldn't come until after our wedding and honeymoon in November. We wouldn't possibly be married anywhere other than St. Paul's Pawtucket, where the congregation had seen our love blossom. I told this to the senior warden of St. Mark's, and he laughed and said, Well, Perrin, we've waited for two years for you already. What's another six months? I retired from St. Mark's, and we moved to Washington, D.C., to the home I grew up in with neighbors all around who'd known me as a kid and had loved my parents. I was prepared to pay bribes to them so they wouldn't rat on my childhood misdeeds. <laughs> I hadn't planned on doing much in the way of church work in Washington, but when I paid my obligatory call to the canon to the ordinary, he asked me if I'd be willing to help him out with a congregation whose priest had been running a drug ring in the parish hall <laughs> and that very day had been arrested. The congregation was prone with shock. Would I go and lift them up? How could I not do so? And that began a long ministry of supply work and interims, mostly with African-American congregations in Washington and in Maryland. After a number of years, we realized that the house we were living in in Georgetown was quite unsuitable for us as we grew older, and knowing that my mother-in-law needed our constant attention, we moved to the cabin to be with her. Later, we paid a visit to Deerfield's continuing care community, put our name in, and have been residents there for five years. I tell you all this because every priest has in her or his career a number of building blocks which, when put one on top of the other, form a kind of monument to a ministry. A building which, like the tower in the parable in this Sunday's Gospel passage, God has given the wherewithal to erect and counts the cost to ensure that it will be completed. And I think that from each of these places I've served, I've taken some particular skill to contribute to make my work at the cathedral better. One of the many pleasures in getting to know Sarah Holbrook 
will be the way she takes the things she's learned through the variety of experiences she's had to shape the priesthood she'll be sharing with you in the years to come. And this time, next Sunday, she'll be with you. You don't need to talk about Sarah anymore. You'll be talking with her. And let me now suggest ways in which this conversation can get off to a good start. I've heard too many sentences that begin in this way. When Sarah comes, she'll need to do this or that or the other. I think by now she has a plate full of 30 more things she'll need to do. So, for every sentence that begins, when Sarah comes, she'll need to fill in the blank, make the very next sentence you say be this. When Sarah comes, I'll do this or that. I'll help her make that happen. This, my friends, is going to be a collaboration, and it will only work as a collaboration. Sarah works, you work. You and Sarah work together. Any other way is doomed to disappointment and failure. Another thing I'd caution you strongly to avoid thinking or saying, well, before COVID, we had this number of people participating in this activity. That program was so popular, we had lots of people helping with it. The church was so full, why even to bursting? What happened before COVID is like the world of the Middle Ages. It has receded into the past and is, for churches especially, pretty well unrecoverable. Don't saddle Sarah with nostalgia about life back when all was rosy, when things worked like a charm, or we think they did, when we had people aplenty to take on any task, any responsibility. Remember how Isaiah said that God was doing a new thing and that before your eyes, God will bring it forth. These great new things usually happened after a terrible calamity. As they did in the wilderness after the, on the journey to the River Jordan after the Red Sea had been crossed or following 70 years of exile in Babylon. COVID has been our catastrophe. See what new thing God will do now. Don't look back. The people of Israel did themselves no good looking back at the big cucumbers they grew in their servitude in Egypt or the long years of exile in Babylon. The ones who looked back were the ones who lost their way in the desert. Where God will be active is in the time to come. That's where God will do the great new thing. And then I hear people who will wait and see. 
They remind me of kids at the sock hops I went to in junior high. They'd wait to see whether the song was fast or slow, whether they liked it or not, and if they didn't, would linger on the periphery, along the wall, looking lonely and just a little pathetic. <laughs> if they were too picky, the dance would be over. They'd miss the dance, the fun of it, the rhythm and the swing. And now as I finish my sermon and relinquish this pulpit, my next work for you is to pray for your happiness in the time to come. And the great new thing God will start to work with you and Sarah during this period just about to commence. And so to make a right beginning of my prayer, I'll close my sermon with one. Let us pray. O God, creator of times and seasons, making the reaper follow the plowman and the harvester gather what the farmer has sown, we thank you for these months that have passed and what has been accomplished by the efforts and enthusiasm of many. Grant that we can now say yes to the time to come, looking forward and not back. Let us ride on the wings of your spirit to take us where you would have us go, for the sake of your glory and our great joy. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.